Now let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our scripture readings for today are from the New Revised Standard Version Bible, and we begin with the Gospel of Mark. And we will be reading the account of the crucifixion with various sections of chapters 15 and 16. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes in the whole council. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas for them, and after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him into the courtyard of the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole cohort. After mocking him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two rebels, one on his right and one on his left. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. When evening had come, and since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Joseph bought a linen cloth and, taking the body down, wrapped it in the linen cloth and laid it in a tomb that had been hewn out of rock. He then rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, When the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. Our next reading for today comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 7 through 13. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. When it says, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. He himself granted that some are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ.
Our final reading for today is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of God to the people of God. Thanks be to God. I have what turned out to be a rather interesting message for me to write this week. Partly because I was working on three separate questions that all center around the crucifixion. These questions require us to look at tradition, language, and our own understanding. Each reading for today corresponds with a different question. The first question is one that I hear all the time. The question has to do with the timeline of the crucifixion, revolving around the idea of three days. How can we count out three days in the crucifixion? Our first reading is a recap of the timeline from Mark. I chose to read various sections from Mark 15 and 16 to give us a good summary of all the time that passes. Mark is also what I would say is the most concise accounting. We get that everything started on Friday morning and concludes with the empty tomb on Sunday morning. For many, this would be two days from Friday morning, not three. And certainly doesn't seem to correspond with being in the tomb for three days. This can bother people enough that some have tried to work out a completely different timeline, focusing on a Wednesday crucifixion. I don't think we have to go that far. Because doing so is simply applying our own understanding versus the understanding that the author would have had. It's hard sometimes for us to remember that not everything that we understand now is the way that people understood things many years ago. This happens all throughout the Bible, and it's just the way they counted time. So, this can distort our ideas of time, but it is important for us to know how this works so that we understand it if this ever becomes a question that we're asked. So, for the crucifixion, Christ is crucified on day one, Friday. Everyone stays away from the tomb on the Sabbath. So Saturday marks day two. Then the next day is Sunday, when the women go and discover the empty tomb on the third day. 
Now, someone might claim that this is just gymnastics to fix a problem. It's actually quite the opposite. It's the least amount of gymnastics because this is the way dating is often counted in the Bible. A great example of this is that sometimes the reign of kings can be rather confusing because it doesn't matter when the king took power. His first year is the year he took power. His second year is when a new year starts. We often measure, if we think about how long someone has been in office, from a specific date to another specific date. Let's say we can look at my appointment here. If I was appointed to begin on July 1st of the year 2021, come July 1st of 2022, we would say it was the end of my first year. Not so when we look at the biblical accounting. Say a king comes into power at the last year of the month. That is his first year. As New Year rolls around, he enters the second year of the king's reign. Let's say in the following year, in the first month of the year, he is removed from power. Then it would say that he is removed from power in his third year. Even though he was only in power for a year and two months. But that is often how it's counted. So when we think about the crucifixion timeline in the same way, we can easily see how Christ was crucified, dead, and buried, and rose on the third day. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I know that can cause some confusion because it goes against modern conventions. But that is the accounting that we have, and that's often how time was measured. And that is how Jesus rose on the third day. Now, some of this relates to the Apostles' Creed, which is where our second question about the crucifixion comes from. Some of these were lumped together, and I separated them out to answer it easier. But in the Apostles' Creed, it states that Christ rose on the third day. Now, the question that we have for this second section is a line that has caused much controversy and much confusion. The question is, did Christ descend into hell? Now, if you were to open up our trusty United Methodist hymnal and turn to page 881, you would find there the traditional wording of the Apostles' Creed. And if you would mark it here, as we read through, it says that Christ was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. But you may have noticed a marking, denoting a footnote. What is our footnote? It has that the traditional Reading includes the words, he descended into hell. It was controversial enough that it was relegated in the hymnal to a footnote, which is actually bringing it back 
Because at some point in time, it was just dropped completely. Many find this to be an odd statement. I know that it confuses people because I've been asked this question many times over the years. It gets asked all over the place, and people have many explanations. I'm going to try to give the simplest. Because people want to know both the background of that line of the creed and why it isn't part of the main text in our hymnals as United Methodists. One of the reasons it isn't included is because it isn't fully backed up by Scripture. We only have this hinted at, as we see in our second reading for today. Paul's letter to the Ephesians contains a reference that gives us an insight into this line from the Creed, even though at first glance it may not sound like it. Paul writes that if Jesus ascended, then it means that he must have descended into the lower parts of the earth. And this is actually a great help in understanding our line from the Creed. But to understand it, we have to understand changes in language and tradition. To simplify this, we can look at the original Latin text. The original Latin has the phrase in it. <clears throat> Descendit ad infernos. And, ah, inferos. Sorry about that. My Latin's a little rusty. Descendit ad inferos basically means descended to those below. Alternatively, you could translate it as descended to the underworld. It is worth noting here that this would correspond with the Hebrew word Sheol and the Greek Hades, two of the words used in the Bible to actually refer to the land of the dead. They're actually some of the only Terms used to refer to the land of the dead. This can cause us a bit of confusion. Because neither Hades nor Sheol denotes a good or a bad place. They simply state where the dead reside. All the dead. While this idea of Christ going to hell has long been a part of tradition, it has only the vaguest of references from the Bible itself and is a poor English translation because of our ideas of what those words mean. For a better translation, we can actually turn to the hymnal once again. If we look at 882, we have the Apostles' Creed in its ecumenical version, in updated use. In it, it has that Christ was crucified, dead, and buried, and he descended to the dead. Descended to the dead is a much, much more accurate translation with all of the connotation that the word hell brings with it. So I suppose one answer is that Scripture doesn't directly say Jesus descended into hell. And the original Latin itself doesn't actually imply that. 
This is a case of tradition not always being backed up by the biblical account. It doesn't mean it didn't happen. It doesn't mean the creed is wrong. More that we simply don't know. But the idea of Christ descending to the dead does work out theologically. That he brings the good news to all, living and dead. Because God is God of all. But it is important to note that the way that the traditional creed is often worded doesn't actually match what the original Latin intended. So I hope that that clears up a little bit and helps you to understand why the words are there and what they really mean. Now, our third question about the crucifixion comes from something that's also asked a lot. And it has to do with the questions that we've just been dealing with on timelines. If Jesus died, went to the dead, and was resurrected on the third day, how does the criminal on the cross fit in? This comes from our reading from Luke. In Luke's accounting of the crucifixion, one of the criminals that is being crucified along with Christ asks Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. Christ says, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. The issue many people run into with this is how we square away the idea of is happening today with the timeline that we've just been going over. I think one problem, and this might actually be the main problem for many people trying to get through this question, is attempting to put a human timeline on the divine. Because all we have is the way that we experience time. That doesn't take into account how time may work differently for God and how it may work differently outside of our earthly setting. The other thing we could reflect on is that when Christ is on the cross, he dies. He doesn't rise until Sunday. So we can understand from this that Christ has to be somewhere in this time. His body is laid in the tomb, but it's understood that he is elsewhere, at least before the resurrection. However, this is also a great time to remember a few other things about Jesus. He's also the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. It can be easy to overlook the different ways that we think about Jesus, especially if we, can t if we take into consideration that He is part of a triune God that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three, but also one. Because of that, it opens up multiple doors for even what that statement could mean. When Jesus tells him, truly you will be with me today in paradise. Because if the thief entered paradise, in whatever way we went to define that, 
And believe me, that is a discussion for another day. Because we have a whole lot more tradition and language and understanding wrapped up in that concept too. But if we think about that thief entering paradise, it would be hard to think of a situation in which God would not be there. And if Christ is God, and our understanding of being three but also one, then it would mean that Christ is there. Because it would mean that being God means he would be there. Because sometimes we separate out God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, forgetting that all three are still one God. Because of that, I think that we really do have multiple explanations for how Jesus and the thief could fit today onto a timeline without any issue. And I hope that this did help some. The crucifixion itself can get overlooked, even though it is such a central part of our faith, often because the account comes on Good Friday, or maybe the Sunday before, and then we're ready for Easter. We are ready to talk about the resurrection. We are ready to put the crucifixion behind us. And often when we do so, we put it away until the same time next year. But I think it's important that we do ask those questions. Do you have more questions about the crucifixion? I would be happy to do my best to answer them. I hope these answers have at least been helpful and informative, or at least given you something more to think about and something more to reflect on. Because the crucifixion is such an important event. Any question about it is worth trying to answer. It could be a very long answer, it could be a very short answer, but seeking wisdom is always important, and gaining knowledge and understanding so that we can grow together in God is always important. And may we all be strengthened day by day, that as we grow in wisdom, we may grow in hope. Hope in Christ, hope in life eternal, and hope in a steadfast love that endures forever. Blessing us this day forth and forevermore. Amen.